Welcome to episode number 49 for the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Experience counts when it comes to land management. Land improvements take time, and it takes a lot of knowledge to know what will work and what won't over the years to come. Today, we're talking with Jimmy Riley, hunting club manager for Giles Island for 27 years and now an agent with National Land Realty. For those of you who are not familiar with what Giles Island is, it is the premier hunting destination of Mississippi and one of the top pieces of hunting land in the United States. Our friend Jimmy is responsible for what the island is today. He's here to tell the story of developing Giles Island and to share his knowledge gained over 27 years of land management experience. Now sit back and enjoy. Okay. All right. Well, so I am sitting here with Jimmy Riley, and if if it's a name that you recognize, you are savvy to the hunting world. If it is a name you don't recognize, uh, you should pay attention. Jimmy has a wealth of information. As the, so, it, just to fill people in here, Jimmy ran Giles Island, and Giles Island is a hunting mecca in the United States, known for large bucks and uh, what Jim Bowie knife fights. Right. Um, so, managed large bucks. This is a a world famous, nationally famous, famous in the hunting community property known for giant animals, great management, and in a little bit of history, I mentioned the the, the Jim Bowie thing there, but uh, Jimmy, tell me a little bit about just your 20, I mean, we're going to talk about your 27 years of experience, but tell me how you got involved with Giles Island in the first place, and now you're working with, with land real estate, but uh, just talk a little bit about your background, how you got in there. Yeah, yeah, so in uh, 1996, I... Um, had left a job, a nine-year career in the poultry industry. I was uh, managing a uh, chicken plant where we harvested. I mean, we we actually killed and cut up 132,000 chickens every day. And I didn't like that too much. <laughs> <laughs> My passion has always been, you know, outdoors, hunting, fishing, farming. And that's what I did all the way through high school and, and college, you know, uh, for a job is working on a farm. It's a farm hand. And I love that work. And of course, naturally, since I was a kid, it was all about the deer and the turkeys, you know, and the fish. So I heard that Giles Island had taken a new owner back in 1996. And I had been to Giles Island one time in high school on a fishing trip and we just tore the bass and white perch up and, you know, I saw the place and I thought it was just spectacular. And I always heard stories about Giles Island having tremendous amount of deer, you know, just herds of deer. They ran them with dogs and horses, you know, during the gun season back in the day. That's what we did, you know. And uh, so it was always a big talk about how many deer were on Giles Island. And you didn't hear so much about big deer on Giles Island. You just heard about a lot of deer. So I just sent the owner uh, just a cold letter. Uh, and in a resume and two weeks goes by and I don't hear anything. So I called him and asked if he got it. And he said, yeah, come on up here and let's have an interview. So I did. And it went well. 
And three days later, I was on Giles Island as the caretaker, living oh. like a hermit. I mean, it was no, it was just one owner and he brought in his friends and family and a few business associates and uh, we weren't selling hunts or anything. And uh, so there we were, I was living like a hermit on the island by myself, 9,400 acres and loving every minute of it. Of course, there's a lot of work to, to do on that, <laughs> that kind of property, but uh, and there was a lot of things that I wanted to change and make better over there. And the owners, you know, just went right along with me on everything. So after a year, he asked me to come up with a plan to cover the expenses on the island because, you know, a big piece of property, you know, has a lot of expenses and the upkeep and the maintenance of everything, the road structure. And when you have that kind of property, you got a lot of food plots and that's expensive. Everything's expensive. So, um, so I did, I came up with a plan to, and I didn't know what I was doing now. I mean, I was just, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't even take a typing course, but here I was on a word processor sending out letters to people asking them to come hunting on Giles Island. So we devised the the business model to sell three day deer hunting packages on, on Giles Island. And uh, it went real good from the start. We almost booked the first season up. The first season we ran, it was 1999. And boys, it was a ride from then on. It never stopped. I mean, the people just kept coming and we uh, uh, talk about the deer a little bit. So I, you know, I said uh, there was always known to have a lot of deer, but I knew the potential had to be there to have, you know, giant deer because they would kill a good one every now and then. But I said, if we can kill one, we can kill a lot of them. So we came up with a management buck program and we tweaked it a little bit throughout the years and that'll be a whole nother conversation but uh yeah we brought that up to uh just world-class whitetails I'm, I'm talking you know 170 180 the biggest deer we taken over there was 248. Uh, so yeah so anyway it was a long run it was a nice long run on giles island for 27 years i was there so from the point that you got there, you, you mentioned that the the owner that you started working with right out of the gate um, was mostly friends and family coming in. Looking at the photos now, like this is this is a premier luxury property. It, I mean, this is it, it, it looks like I, I was describing it to somebody the, the other day. Like this is the kind of place where like you go in there and so, uh, someone like rubs your feet before you go out to the hunt. Someone, someone else is assisting you aim the rifle. Someone else is rubbing your shoulders while you take the shot. Like it, it looks granted. It's not that right, but it, it just, it looks that nice. And so when you, when you came on board, was it like that? Uh, Yes, kind of sort of. Okay. The owners had high expectations, but and, all right to correct you a little bit, we don't rub. We didn't rub feet, and we didn't rub shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> but we did aim the gun a whole lot of times. I'm telling you, we we had clients, uh, guests over there that from all aspects of the hunting world. We had professional hunters coming in. We had uh, novice people that didn't even you know. We would ask them. Um, have you got that rifle sighted in? Oh yeah, yeah, I just got it uh, the other day, and they said they had it bore sighted in, just perfect from the from the shop. And I'm like, oh my god, bore sighted? You might be able to hit a 55 gallon drum, but that's you know. So anyway, we would cater to congratulations. Whatever. Shoot straight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, so we saw it all, and you're right. It, it was a we combined. We actually combined combined the luxury with uh, the weekend hunting experience. The the you know the weekend warrior. It was a good old boy type hunt. It was a family oriented operation. Um, so the quality of the lodging facilities over there when I when I came over there. I remember back when I went fishing that time in 1982, there was like 35 little redneck Cajun little camps all on that campsite ridge. And it was hodgepodge, you know, because nobody owned anything. They were leasing it. So they weren't putting a lot of money into these things. And it was just a shelter to get out of the rain, basically. They weren't snake proof. They weren't rat proof. I mean, it was bad. Well, when I went over there in 96, I saw he had cleaned a lot of that up and he kept the nicer buildings that were there and remodeled them and got them livable. So when we started the business in 99, we had about four buildings that were old, you know, they, they weren't very nice at all, but they were nice enough. You and me, you know, we would love to have that kind of hunting camp right now, but uh, not for the clientele that we were wanting to have that were willing to spend the money, you know, to come over there and enjoy uh, the property, all aspects of it. And so we built in 2003, we built a big fine lodge. It was called the Antlers Lodge. And um, it served the purpose of a uh, common area where we all gathered to, to meet before the hunts. That's where we lounged around, watched the football games. And that's where we had our meals and dining room and everything and had a game room and also it's still there. Uh, and in 2007, we put in another big lodge called the treetops and that's, that was the lodging facility. So okay. we did away with all of that old substandard type lodging and made it really five-star accommodations as well as five-star hunting. So would, when people would come in to hunt, they, would they primarily stay in the lodge or you, did you go out set up, you know, satellite camps with people where they would get to like do the real outdoor, like camp in the woods thing? No. How, how did you manage that? We never did that. You never did that? No, no, no. It was, it's, it was, you know, it was neat, neat and clean and, you know, air conditioned and heated all the way. And uh, now you, to go to Giles Island is a very unique experience because the first thing you do, you land at old river and we had about, we got about five lots over there where you, everybody parked. And then we got on a boat to go across old river. And then we got into trucks and I mean, in five minutes we were there. Now we had a, a working access to drive around on the backside, come off the levee, the backside, but it would take you 45 minutes to get there. And if it's raining, it's a little muddy coming in that way. So, it's just so easy for us to go by boat and man, the guests really loved it. Cause once they got on that boat, they turned that cell phone off and they left the world for three days. I mean, that is such a great experience. And, uh, but we're only 20 minutes away from town. So it was nice to have that too, to be able to go get our supplies and everything for the hunt. So when you came on board here, you've got no experience. And, and after a year, you get told to put a business plan together about, with you know, what's your idea? How long of a process was what you went through to take it from, we'll call it how, the, how that place would be advertised today when it was like back in 1999, we'll, we'll call it rustic. It was rustic at the time. And how do you take it from that point 
to you said in 2003 you built the first lodge was it was it at a high standard by 2003 you jump on board in 99 and by 2003 you have this place whipped in the shape yeah so it's it's all about the deer right that i mean when you're talking about hunting property in most cases i mean probably 95 percent of property owners it's all about the deer so that was my greatest focus and the owner brought in the the class of accommodations that he wanted to have which allowed us to charge more i mean it cost more to obtain it uh, maintain it and all but it it um it, it allowed us to bring in the revenue that he wanted to bring in so yeah let's talk a little bit about getting started there so he said come up with a business plan so I'm like, I just got to be honest with you. I heard about Terra. Terra Wildlife is up there by Vicksburg. And they were, I kind of looked at what they were doing. And I called Gilbert Rose over there and talked to him about it. He said, no, I'll, I'll help you out, buddy. The competition's good. So we talked back and forth. And, you know, that's what I love about the hunting world. We're all in this thing together, right? So um, that's kind of how I formulated the business model. And back in those days, there weren't very many outfitters across America. And the only thing you had to do back then to market your hunting operation was to go. There was about three or four or five uh, magazines, hunting magazines. You had Sports of Field. You had Outdoor Life. You had uh, Peterson's Bow Hunting. You know, there was a, a very few of them. So what I did was ran an ad in the back of the you turn to the last page in those magazines. Now I'm telling my age now. And there was a, <laughs> they had a classified section. Okay. In the back of these magazines, and it was a little one inch by two inch ad. And that's all you had to do was put your name and number there. And I, that first year, man, the, the phone rang off the hook. And I, I started that business. I had, I had a bag phone. A lot of people listening to us right now. Don't even know what a bag phone is. There was no cellular phones back in the day. That was as close to a cellular phone as you could get. And it was a bag and I had a four wheel drive Suburban and it sat right in the middle and plugged into a cigarette lighter. Yep. And I had a checkbook and I had a booking calendar. That's how I started the business. And you know, I'd hop off the tractor and go check the phone and call people back, you know. And anyway, that's all we had to do. And then that first year, Mossy Oak, came to me and said, how would you like uh, us to come over there and do a couple of hunts and run on the Hunt in the Country TV show? I said, I would love that. So they came over that first year. We made a couple of kills on, on TV. It ran. The phone really rang off the hook when those TV shows because there weren't very many hunting shows out there. It was, I think you only had, uh, we had the Buckmasters and you had Mossy Oaks Hunt in the Country and you had Primos. That's about it. If you want to watch a hunting show, that was the three shows you had to watch. And you had to and watch it on yes or something like that. It was usually on some like obscure channel that you had to find it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, or they found different cable. networks uh, in those days. They, I think it started out on TNN Outdoors. Right. And I was going to say there was the USA ran a few TNN did and you'd see some like it. Some obscure uh, stuff on, on ESPN. And that was like ESPN. They made a run at it one time. So anyway, yeah, just very fortunate. And from then on, we had hunting shows every year. And by other people outside of Mossy Oak, but Mossy Oak was our mainstay. 
And uh, actually, I can't remember the year now, but they asked me to, they were going to start a new show called, they had the Turkey Thugs show going, and they were starting a new one called Deer Thugs. And they asked me to to kind of co-host that thing. It was five of us outfitters that they picked across America to co-host the show. And it ran for about five years and it, and allowed us, we got to go hunting in different places across America. And I really enjoyed that because, you know, as an outfitter, as a guide, you don't get to hunt. Okay. And, it, and then let me tell you what, there is a distinctive difference between being a hunter and being a guide. It's not the same. Both of them are fun and I enjoy the guiding. And, but it's a totally different ball game when you've got the weapon in your hand. So during those five years, I was really loving it because I got to hunt about five or six times a year in different places across America. And I love seeing the different parts of the hunting world, you know, and I learned a lot, you know, about those, about the Midwest, even up in uh, uh, South Dakota, you know, and across the Southeast United States and Texas. I mean, that's, they're, they're, they're totally different, um, uh, experience when you go to those hunting places. I was going to say too, you, you mentioned, you mentioned the fellow that helped you out, um, locally and, and it is, it, you know, to, to it, it, this total graybeard statement, right? Like at a, growing up in a time, cause it, you know, I was, I was, I think 99, I just graduated from high school and was hitting college and we had the internet, but it wasn't like what you see now is the internet. It was like dial up and like, there was like a hamster on a wheel somewhere and you were just praying the page was going to open in the next five minutes. And if you did, it was all text and nobody had even started advertising. So it's not like, it's not like you, Jimmy, are going to log in and find out about deer management. Like you're just not like, you're probably going out there, like trying to find anybody you can with an opinion. Like, what do I do? Or, or making it up as you go or coming up with your own kind of plan or just whatever, you know, whatever you can read about. Like, and, and then if you have to read it, you gotta go find it at the library. You gotta find a magazine with the right article and hope they publish something in that amount of time. Like, it's not like the information is readily available. Well, uh, that's where the that's where the hunting shows come into play. You could obtain a bunch of knowledge just by watching so-called professional hunters out there, you know, which they're no really no better than most of us out there that go hunting. There. <laughs> but just because on TV, some people think they are. So anyway, uh, let me tell you a little funny story. So there I was about two or three years in, somewhere around 2001, 2002. And I'm at Lake St. John with my family during the 4th of July weekend. And my cousin's out there, Lance, and we're on the end of the pier. And I'm telling him about, you know, the business we got going. It's going good, man. You know, we got, we got a little bit of slack in the bow season. I want to fill that bow season up a little more. I need more hunters in the bow section. And uh, he said, man, you need to, you need to get on the internet. And I looked at him sideways and I'm like, what is the internet? Yeah. I had no idea. I mean, I was living, when I tell you, I spent 24 seven on that Island over there. I mean, that, that was my life. I mean, there was nothing else in my life, but that right there. I mean, there's, there's two seasons, there's hunting season and getting ready for hunting season. So I'm like, what is the internet? So I had to dig into that and learn what that was, but we still didn't have the tools to use it. You know, I mean, we had no, internet access over there on the island to use it even if i wanted to use it so just went a lot of years just 
you know, just winging it, man, the best I could. And I, I'm just going to tell you, those TV shows were where it was at. It, it just cut my job in half. And, but when social media came, came on board, uh, I did get on it relatively quick. I knew I, I, knew I had to, had to, had to stay up. We unfortunately we have to stay up with all the technology that's out there if you're going to succeed in business these days. It's just the way it is, and it's hard on us old guys that didn't even take a typing class. You know, back in the day, we're still pecking with one finger on the on the computer. You know, so but you know, you know, well, there's a will, there's a way, and the beauty is that we had the deer, we had we had a plan, we had a vision uh, with the deer management, the buck management, and we were fortunate that it worked out, you know? So, you know, I, I wanted to, I want to ask you about the deer density and how you maintain that um, is one of the advantages that you have in this is, you know, as people look for, for deer habitat, recreational properties, those kind of things. One of the most important things that you have is what your neighbor's deer management plan is. If, if your neighbors don't manage for deer, and and you do, and you're you're on an island there in, in the middle of a landscape, and you're not exactly gonna like bear fruit. You know, it's gonna be more difficult. If everybody around you is on the same deer management plan, you can really get some things done and you can really get some traffic going through there. And if everybody kind of works together, that becomes a big deal. You're on an island. You don't have to sweat it. You have, but I mean, I'm I'm guessing, you know, knowing the deer swim and stuff, I'm guessing you had some migration between, you know land and island but was it did you have to worry less than say you normally would yeah i'm, I'm gonna agree with you partially yes we <laughs> had an it we had an advantage okay we had an advantage uh being on that island is kind of like a fence it's like a part-time fence but there's a certain percentage of those deer that come and go across the water they cross old river and they cross the main Mississippi River. I still cannot fathom why a deer would jump into that Mississippi River and swim across it a mile wide in the current in that thing uh, when they don't have to. Now, sometimes the floods come and they have to leave, but some of them do it when they don't even have to. So it's, but it is a little bit of advantage, but you are so correct when you say your success in your buck management program is is going to be partially determined by your neighbors. And I can tell you, I even experienced that on Giles Island. We had 15 square miles. Okay. So we could really manage some deer. Okay. Everybody would love to have that opportunity. I'm just very fortunate to have lived it, you know, um, but our neighbors to the North rifle point hunting club, it, when I first came was owned by international paper company. And they divided, it was about 7,500 acres, and they divided that thing in half, and they had Rifle Point North and Rifle Point South Hunting Club. And they, their buck management program was uh, 16, no, yeah, a six point or better. <laughs> they had to have six points or better, and then progressive, the next buck, the second buck you shot had to be better than him. So that's not much of a program at all, okay? And I'm trying to remember the year, it was somewhere around maybe 2003 when uh, one of my buddies bought that place. And uh, I went to high school. He's a little bit older than me, but he went, we went to the same high school. And he bought the whole place. And within, and he, he, he knew what we were doing. And he wanted to, you know, 
do exactly what we were doing because he was seeing our success. Within two years, business picked up for us. Even though we were doing so good, well, we shared about 30% of our deer with him over there. Well, right, I, right. You got, that, you got them swimming back and forth and doing that thing. And if you get somebody else managing their deer as well. Well, right there, they didn't have to swim far. It, the, the chute uh, is only about 75 yards wide right there where they had to I go across. I mean, that's nothing. So they just tip, tiptoed across there regular. And before our deer, when they went across over there, they got shot. And when when Paul Mang took over Rock Point, he he put the quietness on all that, and he said, "We're gonna we're gonna shoot old deer," and uh, and we started we started killing more big deer. Okay, as a result, and he was too, and he still is. Day, it, it's all just rocking and rolling, just just like it, I left it. So, uh, yes, you are exactly correct. That and it, it it it's a little bit disheartening when say you got two or three or five hundred acres. And you want to raise, uh, you know, your deer to be all they can be. And they cross that line and you hear the shot. You know, you he walks off of your food plot five minutes later. You know what direction he went and you hear the shot. And, you know, that hurts. Uh, but it is what it is. You just do the best you can. But if you can, you know, get your neighbors to go along and y'all get on some kind of program together, all everybody's going to benefit. Right, right. Because you get a larger population, you get a big larger population and larger animals because they get a chance to grow old. Right. Yep. That's it. So what I'm curious about is as you come into this, you're forming a business plan. How much trial and error did you go through in like, say the first four years? I mean, I, if I'm imagining myself going into a situation like that, it's going to be like 50, 50. (laughs) Oh, okay. I'm not doing that again. Okay, a lot of trial and error. Okay, so, and people, you know, they they get mad at me because I had a list of rules. The the, the last package I put together for the guides uh, was about I don't know eight or ten pages worth of stuff. And so every time something negative happened, I would establish another rule, <laughs> another protocol, or whatever, what not to do, what to do, and all this stuff. So. It got big. So there was a lot of, you know, trial and error never stopped really. Uh, but so just for example, we, we started out, our, our, our hunts were optional one-on-one guide. That's what we started with. You could have a guide set with you and tell you what deer was legal to shoot because I had a, started out with a $2,500 fine if, if you shot the wrong deer. And you didn't have your guide with you. So the guide was like insurance policy. Okay. You shoot the deer that the guide says you can shoot, you're in the clear. Okay. Even if the guide screws up. Right, right. All right. Well, guess what? I had to collect on that a few times. I didn't like that because I know that, you know, some people think, well, you know, you shoot one or two of the wrong deer, you know, it's not going to be a big deal. No, it's a big deal. Because you don't know whether that deer had 170 potential or not. You'll never know because he did. So we eventually went to mandatory one-on-one guide. You had to take a guide. And it was, you know, people didn't like that at first, but then they they grew to like it because they could go hunting and not have any pressure on them whatsoever. The only pressure they had was making a shot. Okay. And 
So it was appreciated over time. And that is the niche. I'm going to tell you right now, that is the niche we had above a lot of other properties is the one-on-one guide service because it was easier for us to train 12 guides because we took 12 hunters every three-day hunt. It's easier for us to train and manage 12 guides that are getting paid. This is their job than it is to try to train 340 hunters that come through there. And it's the same thing on your hunting club back home. You've got eight or 10 members in your hunting club. If you can train them, but it's hard to train them because they don't do this for a living. They're weekend warriors and they're coming in there and they've got limited amount of time to, to hunt. And so it's not the same. And a few mistakes matters big time. When you shoot that three-year-old deer, it matters, you know. So that's the niche we had. And and so I took that. <laughs> uh, well, before we went mandatory, I raised that 2500 to 5000 That stopped that bleeding. But uh, I still wanted to, to make sure that we were doing everything that we could do. So we went to one-on-one guide mandatory. I got you. So, you know, at a certain point, you're just managing, I mean, I always say that you can do everything you can about logistical problems, but you're never going to fix people problems. And so you're just fixing the people problems, right? You train what you can and then they're one-on-one and they get to kind of direct the show. You you know, a lot of people, you know, you, 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 if you're, you got a hunting club, you got a buck management program, you got certain shooter requirements. Okay. You lay them out there and everybody understands everybody votes on it. It's great. That's what we're going to do. Well, guess what? In the excitement of the hunt, you know, you don't, some people don't even know what they're looking at. They don't know what a 130 class deer or a 150 class deer is. They can see a 125 and it's the biggest thing they ever saw. And that's got to be a shooter. Boom. He's down, he's down and you go pick him up. He's a two or three year old deer. Right. And that hurts, you know. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of people have good intentions, but making it happen is another story. Did you go through any training as you were doing this? Because I'm just thinking about my own background and just, I've, I don't do guiding or anything like that, but I've fished and hunted with a lot of people. And you, no matter what crowd you are in, you always get a, you know, there's always at least one person that tells you how good they are, what a good shot they are, how, what a good caster they are, how many big fish they caught. And then you you get them out in the field and it's like, they're, they're tracking a squirrel. Like it's a buck or something like that. Like, it's like, you obviously don't know anything about the tracks or what, why were you telling me you were so good at this? You those situations always happen. How how did you sort of establish the ground rules in those situations where you were managing the people that would come in and make sure everybody, not only is that person successful, say if they're inexperienced and maybe they prop themselves up. I don't know if you went through that a lot, but I could imagine you did. How did you manage that kind of situation to still make sure everybody had a good time? Uh, well, well, the proof's in the pudding because we posted our pictures up on, I had a website going early on. I did do that with technology. I managed mm-hmm. that uh, as soon as I learned about that internet. <laughs> so, um, so our pictures were up there and then the TV shows, we were killing big deer on those TV shows. Uh, so the hunters came in there with confidence that we had the deer. Number one, that's the, that's the main thing. Do they have them? I mean, if you want to catch 10 pound bass, you want to go to a pond that or a lake that you know has had 10 pound bass caught out of it. Right. Right. So you're and saying most of the people that most of the people that came through were pretty, pretty solid. 
they they were solid with what we had to offer. Okay. And, and then our guides, um, you know, we, we picked guide. Nobody asked to be a guide on Giles Island unless they had a love of the outdoors and they were avid hunters, you know. So we had to weed through them too now. Uh, not everybody that's a good hunter has a good work ethic, you know. So there's more to do as a guide on a hunting property than just sitting in a stand and saying, shoot this, don't shoot that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of midday work that goes on. And uh, so we had to weed through that too. But so we we were fortunate enough and that's hard to find 12 people. That was one of my biggest struggles was making sure we had enough guides for everybody because, you know, not everybody has a job that allows them to be free for four months out of the year. And so you're looking for guys that have lawn care service or guys that have a swimming pool service or has their own business and they can, somebody else can run it while they come over there to guide or, you know, something like that. So, but we always manage to have enough. And I'm very thankful of that because without that, we would have shot the place up. You know, <laughs> when you start pushing that many hunters through a problem, we took, you know, a full booking for us was 384 hunters in a year. Wow. Always about 85 to 95% booked. So, and in, in the population of deer in that area, did you ever have any estimates on, on what year, year to year you were looking at as far as population? Now that's, that's where the, the large amount of hunters comes in as a, as an asset, because when you have that amount, amount of property in the Mississippi river bottom, you know, that the carrying capacity on that land is, is a deer per nine acres. I mean, that's a lot of deer. So, and we try to run a one-to-one -one ratio. So you got to shoot a lot of does, a lot of does every year. You can't, you can't skip. So we, we were able to stay on top of all of that too. You know, we offered, we, we incentivized the doe shooting. We, uh, we put it out there, man, we could talk for days about this stuff. I'm telling you, um, we told them every, for every doe you shoot, we're going to put your name in a drawing for a free hunt next year. And that, that got some people to, to shoot some does, you know? So yeah, it, it's, uh, ooh, it's been a, it's been a big run. I get the biggest kick out of that because I, I live out West and, and, you know, you're talking about how you have to shoot so many does because what you're going to end up with is overpopulation and they're going to, you know, like you're not going to have a healthy population and, and we'll go out during a hunting season and we're stoked if we like, if you see like a handful of deer when you're out there, I mean, you'll see them, but they're at like four or five miles. And by the time you get to them, they're gone. And like, you know, there's plenty of amazing hunters I know out here that get skunked on a year to year basis. And then like you're talking about an island in Mississippi where it's like, I can't kill enough deer. Oh, yeah, it, it's, it's a task and not just the does, the management bucks, too. So I saw that coming on to begin with. So we offered it was a two buck opportunity on all of our hunts. You could shoot one trophy buck and one management buck. So. Cause we knew there was, there's a lot of these, you know, six or seven points or small eight points. That, that's not why they come there. They didn't come there to shoot that. They're not going to shoot them. But if you say, Hey, shoot this deer, you can still hunt for your trophy tomorrow. Well, they'll shoot them then see, or they get down to that last evening or that last morning and they, and they hadn't shot their management, but well, they'll shoot him, you know, or they hadn't killed a deer at all that they, they want to leave with something. So that helped a whole lot, you know, and, and that plays into the genetic role, you know, when you can get those inferior antler deer out of the herd. 
So what did you do in terms of landscape design, um, you know, plant management, forage management? Uh, you know, did you, did you supplement, you know, how did you, how did you sort of manage from that side of things? Yeah. So when I first got there, the road system over the main road coming in off of that levee so through Rifle Point Hunting Club and onto the island in July during the drought, you had to have a jacked up four wheel drive to get in there. That's how bad it was. The only people that ever had ever done anything to the roads were the, the oil field because there's a couple of oil wells on the place. And, uh, and all they do is scrape the mud out of the middle and pile it up on the side. And, and then when they leave, you got a, you got a tunnel and, and it holds, and it, it was so bad. So we went, we went to work and talked him into buying a little bulldozer and we started cleaning those main roads up. And then we started working on the, the, the side roads, wanted to make everything accessible not that we ride on everything all the time, but we wanted to be able to access all parts of the property to be able to pick up a deer if we had to track one way off, you know. And uh, the food plots, <laughs> when I first came there, there was a few of them there, just a few, and they were planting ryegrass in them, you know, and that's useless. Uh, so <laughs> we, we, we established a whole bunch of um, nice food plots, good you know, uh, destination food plots. And we limed them, you know, put the lime down. We did everything that you could do to make them, make them good. Um, the soil on the, in the, over the hill, well, I call it over the hill in the low elevation areas is it doesn't get any better in, in the world. I think it doesn't get any better. Um, so we would plant down there knowing that the river may come up and take some of those, but it was still worth hunting. Um, even if we only got to hunt it for two months out of the four month season. And then the, the higher elevation was mostly sandy. So, and believe it or not, you can grow a good food plot in the sand. You just need to get the rains. If, if the rains come timely, they will do great. And fortunately, we always had just nice, lush food plots. And, you know, by the time, January gets there, they're eating down to the ground. There's so many deer, and we, we kept trying to plant more and more to keep up with them. And, you know, depending on how harsh the winter was, uh, it would determine the quality of food plot that you had in January. Did you do things like try to try to get, you know, protein-rich plants, you know, into the ground to try to inspire antler growth? Were you, were you managing from that side of things, or were you just trying to get the food out? All right, that's another story. So, you know, when the when the protein pellets came on board, okay, oh my God, you can grow your Boone and Crockett deer just feed these protein pellets, okay. Well, guess what? The first we did, we went and built some uh, troughs, covered troughs, and we would go put put them out there. You'd have there's so many deer, we'd have to fill them up every day, and uh, we had ten or twelve of them out there, and First two years we did that, we started noticing uh, we were having half rack bucks. And so they became atypical on that point. You would have one good side and the other side just be a stob. And we, we wasn't seeing that before. And we really couldn't see a big improvement in the quality of our antler, the, you know, our top end quality. 
And so I started asking about it. I had all kind of people calling me, trying to sell me stuff all the time, you know. And this guy called me about these protein pellets, and I was telling him, man, I don't know about these things. Where are these? Uh, we're seeing half racks now. He says, well, yeah, they 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 found that uh, there's a chemical or something in those protein pellets that was causing that to happen. And But we eliminated that out of our product. So I'm quite sure it's out of all of them now, you know, so, um, but the vegetation, I've had several plant scientists on the island. We give tours to and all, and, and I love listening to those guys talk, you know, they got, Do that regenerative we got agriculture. common, we got common names for the plants and all that are out there and they get this big, long, you know, scientific name for everything, but, uh, they know some stuff and, so in that river bottom, most of the vegetation we have over there is 18 to 22% protein. Oof. And that's, that's all that a deer can digest and, and utilize anyway. And we're sitting there pouring, paying an arm and a leg for these protein pellets, dumping them in. Why? We got it naturally. We don't have to do that. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a waste of time and money and energy for us to do it. I'm not going to say it is for everybody, depending on where you are. I mean, if you're in a pine thicket, I think that supplemental feeding with protein pellets is probably a good thing. You're going to benefit your deer's health and, and the quality of the antler. But we didn't have to do it. We were very fortunate not to have to, in that river bottom, you don't have to feed it. Yeah, there's. Uh, we, we've talked to Dr. Grant Woods a few times, um, and it, he's he talks about the same thing where, like, if you – if you're running the right rotation of plants through there with, with high protein count on, on the plants themselves, you know, legumes will, will have a lot of that you'll find. And then in your case, you know, plants with like 18% protein, like that's crazy to where you don't need to do all that supplementation. This is natural food that they're going to forge for anyways. Like you're good. Um, so, so when you were doing this is, was it all tree stand hunting? Was it spot and stock? Did you have ground blinds? Did you have a variation of things that you would use? Or <laughs> how, how did this work? Oh, you're bringing up memories, man. You're bringing up memories. <laughs> all right. So um, we did bow hunting October, November, and then we gun hunted. Uh, we gave an option. It was an optional hunt, either or. You can hunt with bow or gun December and half of January. And then the last half of January, we went back to strictly bow hunting. So we started out. Now we right now there's 55 all weather box stands over there to rifle hunt, and you could bow hunt out of some of them. Um, our bow hunting we had about 135 ladder stands scattered across, and but we did a lot of bow hunting out of two piece climbers, climbing stands, and the guy would put his stand on the tree and start up, and the hunter would come in up, up underneath, and we just get over the hunter's right shoulder with the cat. We videoed all our hunts too for two reasons. Uh, number one, we'd like to see what we're shooting at and have so have a, a, a log of the bucks, you know, that we've got and determine, you know, whether one needs to go on the hit list or not. And uh, number two, we want to see where that deer is hit to know how long to wait before we go tracking him and everything. So it worked out real good. And the hunter, and we would provide a hunter, the hunter with a, uh, uh, a copy of his hunt on video. That was cool. They love that. That's another reason that, that the hunters like the guide service. You know, they got to relive that, take it back home. They show it to all their buddies at the hunting camp and their kids and everything, you know, so that was a good deal. 
Um, so yeah, we would, uh, we started out, we, we gave an orientation on the first day everybody got there and, and we already knew what 12 stands we're going to hunt as guides. We decided where we're going to hunt that afternoon, depending on the wind direction and everything. And we folded it up in a little, on a little paper and the hunters drew their stand location out of a hat. And, uh, so that's where you went now in the early years, probably two or three years, we would, uh, do a little, uh, um, stalk hunting, if you will, slip hunting. And that's the easiest thing to do over there on that flat ground on that Island. I mean, it's, it's so it's stupid easy. Okay. Well, I started doing it to start with. So that's why I like to hunt when I was a kid, when I used to gun hunt, I don't gun hunt anymore. I just straight up bow hunt for 40 years now, but, uh, I just told my age again, then I'm, <laughs> uh, so, well, everybody started doing it. All the guys started taking my lead on that and doing it. I said, no, nah, we can't do this anymore. That's, that's bumping to way too many deer. I don't like that. Uh, we, you know, we, we had some little, unwritten sanctuaries in play and now we don't have them because we're, we're walking through there and bumping everything so i stopped it i said you you draw a stand you got to go to your stand you got to stay there can't can't move so that way you're not disturbing the animals on a regular basis they can that's right the territory okay i got you yeah yeah so uh but look that that bow hunting out of those two-piece climbers that's where it's at and the, and the diehard bow hunter come in there and so what we did in that during our bow section, bow hunting time, when the hunter drew his stand location, he didn't draw a stand location. He drew an area. And these, and we divided the area, the island up into about 17 sections and uh, 17 areas. And so we had 12 hunters. So you drew an area and it was anywhere from 200 to 500 acres big. That was your area for the whole three-day hunt. And you and your guide decided you could go wherever you wanted to in there, morning, evening. It didn't matter. And if you ever thought, well, hey, the wind's not right for what we want to do in here, we're going to cash it in and draw for another area in the morning. Okay? So we did all of that. It was very organized and, and controlled, and everybody appreciated it. Yeah. As you're setting up these these box stands that you talked about, are these the box stands where like you've got four walls of plywood and you climb up in a little box, or, or is, is there like a couch and a radio in there? Okay, well, I, again, when I first came there, there was some hodgepodge box stands over there. They're not there anymore. Okay, <laughs> um, but there were a few nice ones, and then uh, they were homemade out of wood. You know, four by fours and you know, plywood walls and stuff, but with windows, I mean, actual, you know, like house trailer windows or whatever. And, uh, and then we built what we call the big three. We had Serengeti, Anna Marengo, and the Barman. These were the, the hottest fields on the whole big, huge destination food plots where you could see on the good days, you would see in excess of a hundred deer in each field. And uh, so we built some big, fine, wooden, like a little small house, okay? And we got pictures on the walls of all the deer that was killed in there. And and we, ran up, we were running out of room to put pictures of so many deer killed. I mean, not, that vomit stand is the most prolific place I've ever seen. Uh, the most deer seen in that field was 200, you know? It would consistently see 75 to 100 deer every afternoon. And 
we killed back-to-back mature deer uh, many, many, many times. We've killed three days in a row several times. And the record in that stand, we killed five days in a row, we killed a mature buck out of that stand. I mean, that's, I mean, I just, I don't know if you can find that anywhere else. I don't know that you can either. So, so nowadays, I, what I got to ask you now is, you know, after all this adventures for 27 years, this 27 years of managing deer like this at an epic, epic proportion, do you still get that rush when you get out there and it's hunting season and, you know, you're, you're locking in? I sure do. I sure do. I just called my brother this morning and told him we need to get that tractor down to Killarney and start whipping them roads into shape. I walked it the other day with a rifle looking for a hog to shoot and, and uh, there was debris that's in a flood zone. So the river uh-huh. was in and out. And so we got a lot of cleanup down there. So yeah, I love every aspect of getting, I, I think I like getting ready for hunting season more than hunting season. <laughs> I love driving a tractor. I love, you know, seeing, are we going to have any persimmons this year? Look at the pecans at another two or three weeks, we'll be able to look up there and see if we got any wild sweet pecans on the tree, see if we got any nut all, you know, acres. And I love all of that. And, and, and I, another reason I like getting ready for hunting season, it's a, it's great physical activity, you know, and uh, I, I like to stay active and, and going, you know, so, but I do love to hunt. Uh, <laughs> I love sitting, I can sit there, you know, till the cows come home. It, it And I, and, you know, I get to do a lot of other things while I'm sitting there and I, early in the hunt, you know, you're not going to see any deer like that afternoon hunt. You know, the first hour and a half I'm sitting there, I know I'm probably not going to see anything waiting on that prime time. But, you know, I get get caught up with some emails and and my little, you know, my little letter writing to my girl and all this kind of thing. So, you know. I love every aspect. My sister comes down. It's the family hunt. My me and my brother, my sister, my godchild. You know, we hunt together, and everything that surrounds that experience. I love it. Are you able to look at? I'm going to say, I'm going to say like a normal person. Are you able to look at land like a normal person, or or is it, or is it always from the aspect of? Are you always looking for? You know, if you did this. If if you just well, this part, if you if you change this up, you might bring in a few more deer. Like, is is it just always on? It's always on, and and I think that's maybe something that us you know land professionals need to think about. That I mean, we all know this stuff like the back of our hand, and and we take it maybe maybe we take it for granted that everybody does. We we need to catch ourselves sometimes. And I'll give you an example of. Um, a guy called me and, and I drove two hours and 45 minutes to go look at his property and he was wondering what to do with it. And he wasn't a hunter. His, you know, his dad had passed and it, and he inherited the land and he was wondering what to do with it. So, um, and yeah, so I, I was telling him about the timber, you know, he's asking about the timber and all, and you know, he, he wants to do this and he wants to do that with the timber. And I'm like, well, you can't do this. You can't do that. So, um, what about, you know, what about this stand right here? I said, this, these fields right here, you're going to, you, you need to get these fields cleaned up because they've been sitting there for about eight years. And it, I said, if you don't get a bush hog in here by next year, the stuff's going to be too big to clean up. You're going to have to get a bulldozer in here then. So those kind of things, he, 
you know, he wasn't, he's not thinking along those lines, you know? So I think we just got to catch ourselves and make sure that, and, and remind ourselves that, Hey, everybody doesn't know everything that we know. I mean, we don't have to act like a know-it-all cause we're not, you know, I don't know everything there is to know about timber and I don't know everything there is to know about a duck hole. I know some things and I can get you to the right spot too, but uh, when it comes to deer, most of us in this group right here listening know about deer, you know, and, and how, to, how to do for deer. Yep. And it, like, I can imagine too, like with, with, with that kind of experience, just every single tree, shrub, rock, bush, clearing, like your brain is just, you rewire and it's like, it, you just see the landscape as it functions in accordance to, to wildlife at that point, you're like, okay, this is a turkey area. I would do this. And this is a deer area. I would do that. And maybe you should do this. And it's like just always something you're looking at. Cause it's kind of a, I want it, it. It's very scientific in terms of people are looking at protein and, and plants and what grows naturally and, and what the erosion is going to do and where to put a road like that. There is a scientific aspect, but I'd like, I do look at it as there's a very creative approach. It's a creative outlet. It's, it's, there, there's an art form to it. And, and it's sort of, it's a, it's a, it's an expression. And, and once you get into that, it becomes fulfilling and you're just always on it. <laughs> well, you got it. You know, I always say, uh, and Christy laughs at me. I say, man's got to have a plan. You know, uh, if you don't have a plan, you know, you just walking around with your teeth in your head, you got, <laughs> you know, so you got to have a vision and, where do you, where, what do you want this to look like, you know, and to, and then get started, you know, and hopefully it, it, it turns out the way you want it to turn out. So, yeah, we are geared a little bit different. You know, the people in this group listening right here, we're geared a little bit different than, uh, than, than other than your common guy, you know, that maybe shining the seat his whole life and didn't have, but he wants to hunt. And that's why we're here. That's what we are here to do. We are here to to give these people what they want. We're here to show them and help them along the way. And you know, the ones that don't know, and the ones that do know, we're we're here to find them a better place, <laughs> you know, or whatever. So, well, so well, that's what I wanted to ask you next. Is you know, first of all, to get some stories, and I want to I want to get you back on here again too to tell some some you know good old you know good good hunting stories and some some wildlife development stories and stuff. Um, but now you've moved into, you've moved away from managing Giles Island and now you're doing, you're doing land real estate sort of on, you're, you're in Mississippi now. You said you're trying to get a license in Louisiana now too. And, and where else? Uh, possibly Arkansas. Yeah. Possibly Arkansas. That was it. Uh, so, so you, so you're working with that now. So it's, it's sort of a new plan. You, instead of cultivating your own landscape and, and developing it and growing it, you know, you're helping to kind of fulfill other people's dreams and, and, you know, helping people sell and getting that landscape ready to sell and making sure that it's primed to catch somebody's eye for a sale or helping people acquire land and then possibly develop it. And then you, you end up, you know, consulting for years when you end up selling land. What's, what's sort of your, your outlook for this and and what's sort of your approach to it i know you're just starting so i'm asked i'm not going to ask you like tell me about all your years of experience in that like you're just jumping in this and and sort of tell me a little bit just about where you're headed and what you're doing yeah so <laughs> yeah right now i'm just just got my license and uh yeah. so I, i've been kind of drinking through a fire hose here lately what i 
all this technology, you know, um, that we have that this company has to offer us uh, salespeople. So uh, I'm still in there trying to learn that stuff. I haven't even been through the boot camp yet. So I'm, I'm excited <laughs> to get through that. I'm ready to get to the point where I wake up every morning and I say, okay, which 10 people am I calling today? Which people do I have to call? And which new people am I going to call today? That's what I want to do. And um, find the people that 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 want to buy land. Okay, you want to buy land? Let's talk about what you want. What Oh, you want deer? Yeah, I want deer. Do you want duck? Okay, I want deer and duck. No, I don't care about a duck. I want deer and turkey. You know, what do you want? And it's, and it's actually fun. I mean, I've got a lot of properties for sale right now that I can sell. They're not listed, but I've got uh, access to them. I can, yeah. I can put people on good property right now today with deer, duck, or turkey, either one. So, And then, then we go look at them. I, I'm excited about it. I just, I just got a brand new Can-Am. I'm ready to tear the sides off of that thing in some woods, okay? All right, so somebody maybe wants to sell. You know, things happen in life. Circumstances change, and and land is always going to be selling somewhere. So, okay, well, here I'm going to help you try to get the best deal I can for your land, and you know maybe on the buying end of it too. You know, so I'm really excited about it. And and when that buyer buys that, and and he wants to pick my brain about what should I do here, what should I do there, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate that. I can give him a lot of answers, you know, and it's going to come easy. And that's what I'm excited about. That's not a lot to learn there. The stuff I'm having to learn is in this computer screen I'm looking at right now. So. <laughs> yeah. The, the land, the land stuff is just what you do. And that's, I mean, that's really when somebody works with, when somebody works with a land specific real estate professional, that's really what they're looking for, right? Like they're looking for somebody who knows land better than them. There's no reason to work with an agent if you know everything there is to know about land. Actually, there is. You don't want to deal with contracts and other people. I mean, that's really what you're frontlining the the agent with. But when it comes down to it, working with somebody who knows more than most of the people around is a big help. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and I'm gonna tell you, uh, you know, I had when I first the first post I made on. Facebook about me not being on Giles Island anymore. Within an hour, I got four phone calls from friends of mine from three different companies wanting me to go sell hunting land. And I looked at Christy, I'm like, what do these people know about me that I don't know about me? So I, I engaged and I started talking and they're like, man, dude, I mean, you, you, you know what, what's involved with land, you know, how to, how to, you know, develop land, hunting land, you know what it takes and everything. And that's the easy part. So I had a hard time deciding what company to go with because I had friends everywhere. And I decided to go with this company, National Land Realty, because probably two people, Greg Clearman, um, he hunted on the island several years with me. We shared a, tr a many hour in the tree together. And he tried to get me to come over five years ago. He would not leave me alone. That dude is a hound dog. You hear me? And uh, he he pumped me up. And, and uh, so he was there for me. And then Catfish Hunter. And that's Hank Park, uh, Catfish Parker. Hank Parker's son, Catfish, you know, they had uh -huh. the hunting show. 
Well, they hunted on the island a lot too. Now, Catfish is with the company over in South Carolina. He's with National Land Realty over there. And he called me and he told me, he said, Jimmy, you know I'm going to shoot you straight. This, if you're going to sell hunting land for a living, this is the company you need to be with. And really, he's the one that turned me over and made me come with his company. Uh, Greg got it started and wouldn't leave it alone. And then Catfish turned me in. And since then, I have talked to many agents with the company that left other agencies, you know, real estate agencies to come with, to this one. And they said, by far, you made the right choice. This is the best company. So just because of the tools that are offered here, well, no, not just because of the tools that we have to offer. That's a big, that's a big distinguishing difference, but also the team effort that we have here. There's no, no man is an island of himself. And that's, that's kind of the attitude we've got in this company. I love it. I've got a great team working with Jack and Greg over there and Ronnie and then now I've got a separate between those between those gentlemen, you have some of the highest degrees of knowledge in this stuff that there is. That's that's pretty valuable. That's all right for you. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then and then I've got another little team, secondary team here in my hometown, Natchez, with Vidal and Rusty and Rusty. Mm -hmm. So two Rusty's over here. But uh, I feel very fortunate to be sandwiched in between all of that. And I am just ready to get all of this technological stuff in my brain where I can get going and make those phone calls. Excellent, man. Well, I'm going to let you get back to that. I, I appreciate your time today and I appreciate your knowledge and, and, you know, the, the background that you have in this kind of stuff is just, it's, you can't, you can't get that except for with time. Right. And so I appreciate, I appreciate yours today. Um, so I'll have your, I'll have your contact information in the notes. You people out there looking for hunting land, consider Jimmy Riley here and uh, we'll get you back on to tell some more stories. Cause I, yeah, it's, it's an amazing background that you have. We have a lot more to talk about Mac and I can't wait to get into talking about this deer management and food plots and ratio and man, all kinds of, I got all kinds of notes here ready to go to the next one. All right, we'll do this. Thank okay, you. Mac. Have a great day, buddy. You too. This concludes episode number 49 for the National Land Realty Podcast, talking with Jimmy Riley about his 27 years of experience developing Giles Island into one of America's top hunting properties. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.